there is something dramatic happening with Elon Musk. His standing in the public conscious is changing and it's happening right in front of our very eyes. And so when you read stories about Elon Musk, try to step back from them and, and understand what they're saying in the broader sense is that this great showman to some, this great charlatan to many, the public perception is shifting more from showman gently at first towards charlatan. And I think that's such a, a huge symbol for the shift in the times we're seeing. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. A new global order is becoming clearer by the day. And in our global macro series, I, along with my co-host, Jem Kazang, want to dig deep into the minds of some of the most prominent experts to help us better understand what this new global macro-driven world will look like. We want to explore their perspectives on a host of important issues and hopefully dig out nuances in their work through meaningful conversations. Our guest today is one of my own favorite podcast hosts, whose Rolodex is out of this world, which you can tell by the people he's able to speak to. So please enjoy our conversation with the man who makes you go, hmm, Grant Williams. Grant, welcome, and thank you so much for joining Gemini today for what I'm sure will be a passionate and fun conversation as part of our Global Macro series. Now, I first came across your work when you were doing these amazing video conversations where you would go out and spend a day or two with a guest in their surroundings. And I can share with you that your trip to see Neil Howe and your conversation while walking past all the memorials in Washington, D.C. inspired me to take my own family to do the same after I'd asked them to watch your video, of course. And uh, since you launched your own platform, of course, I have been a subscriber to your amazing work. And I'm very inspired, actually, by the quality in all of the things you put out. So thank you for doing what you do and welcome to our podcast. Well, that's incredibly kind of you, Neil. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It's um, Yeah, that, that conversation with Neil, you know, uh, really stuck with me too. Just just to, to be able to talk about the things that Neil talks about, you know, with demography and this idea of the fourth turning and to be able to to have that conversation surrounded by so many reminders of just how those things have played out in history, you know, I think it was important, particularly at a time when it's kind of, if, if you've read the book um, by Neil and Bill Strauss, and if you haven't, I, I can't recommend it highly enough, you, you're familiar with the concepts of, of turnings. Um, and of course, the fourth turning being the most traumatic and volatile of the four. And, and here we are in the middle of one on a, on a calendar basis. But as I say, to, to be surrounded by reminders, war memorials of past uh, periods in history where we've been through full turnings is, was really quite powerful. And Neil's just 
A, a, he's just a wonderful human being, but he's just a, a, an incredible repository of information about those those cycles of history. And I think you know it, it behooves everybody right now, particularly, to really be paying attention to that because um, we we live in in very difficult times. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Now, since it is your first time on our podcast, um, and even though it might be redundant for many of the people listening to us, because they will already know you, of course, but I think maybe just to set the stage for the conversation, maybe you could give us a few highlights uh, from your background, at least, um, that will be relevant for uh, what are the what we're going to talk about today. Yikes. Well, I mean, highlights for me include um, winning the under-19 um basketball championship in the Bromley region. Um, after that, things got a little bit uh, less exciting for me. I, I, uh, I started work in, um, in uh, the city of London at a merchant bank called Robert Fleming in the, in the mid-80s. Um, spent some time with them in, in Japan, in Tokyo, at the height of the Japanese bull market, and then bounced around to, um, to the US, spent um, almost 10 years in the US, spent some time in Hong Kong, in Sydney, in Singapore, um, mostly working uh, for bulge bracket banks, mostly um, UBS Credit Suisse. Uh, then I worked for a hedge fund in Singapore um, for a few years for a, for a friend of mine, Steve Diggle, running one of his portfolios, which was um, an inc incredible experience for me. Uh, and then kind of accidentally co-founded Real Vision with um, Remy, Raul and Damien. And that, that kind of took me off on a, on a very different journey that, that you know, we, we, I don't think any of us planned for it to take us where it did, but it took us that way anyway and it's been it's been a hell of a ride those these last sort of seven or eight years well i'm glad you took that turning because the stories you have told since uh, are just amazing i want to start out with uh, i mean there's so many places we could start out because uh, not only do you know a lot about a lot of things but you also talk to a lot of uh, the best people in so many other uh, topics but we both know um, Peter Sion and we uh, both are familiar with his framework and actually Peter's episode very much resonated with my audience. It's by far the most downloaded episode, even though it's only a couple of weeks old. So using that as a framework, um, I just wanted to ask you, uh, when you look at the big, big picture, um, kind of a truly global macro view, what kind of roadmap do you see? And then maybe we can dive into some of the sort of specific topics um, later on. Yeah, no, I, th I think, um, I think, the fourth turning is a big part of that framework because we, we tend to think that um, that decisions are being made in and of the moment which which change the course of history. But there are these big cycles that, that sit above that and, and this idea of four turnings in a seculum is a really important one because um, you, know, you go back to the Bible, my friend Simon Mikhailovich always quotes Ecclesiastes, there's nothing new under the sun. And he's absolutely right. You know, mankind... Is, is the history of mankind is a history of cycles. And so for the really big global macro picture, I think you have to look at the historical ones and, and not necessarily policy decisions or currency moves or you know, any of the kind of things that we all get bogged down in in, in in the everyday lives that we lead. So for me, you know, I look at that fourth turning, I realize that we're in a critical part of history as we see um, the end of of an era, we see the boomers retiring and, and that power will be handed over. You know, I'm Gen X, we're kind of the forgotten generation and, and the, the, the reins of power will likely skip my generation and go to the millennials. And of course, when you have a change in power, when you have a change in the old guard who are dying off and they're being replaced by younger people, those younger people are gonna be looking out 
for the interests of their generation and, and beyond. And the way the world has gone over these last 40 years and the way that wealth has been distributed, necessarily, you know, there is going to be a sea change in how the world is governed. Because if you are going to govern the world for the benefit on and the future prosperity of the millennial generation, there necessarily has to be a significant transfer of wealth away from the boomer generation and to some extent the Gen X generation and into the hands of millennials and, and Gen Z. And that, you know, that doesn't happen quietly. It doesn't happen peacefully. People don't hand over money. It tends to have to be taken from them. And so, you know, when I look at these, where we are in the, in the, in the very big picture, we're that. It's a generational moment where, where the, the, the people entrusted with um, running the world, if you like, are changing and they're changing in, in, uh, age, but they're also with the rise of China changing in geographical location, and with that it brings a whole different framework. You know, the way that the West thinks about the old and the young is very different to how the East thinks about the old and the young. So we're just we're in this enormous whirlpool of cross currents that that are are shaking the very foundations of our society today, and we like to put that at the feet of uh, either central bank policymakers or government. Um, government's being spendthrift the reality of it is this is a, again a natural cycle so i think once you look through that um and you realize that what we're going through there's a degree of inevitability to it then you know you get down to peter zion's framework and, and you look at the way peter looks at the world right now and and particularly with you know the russia ukraine and i totally understand why that episode was so popular you know peter's done some phenomenal work over the years writing books about this and his last um book um the accidental superpower. Sorry. Yes. Um, the accidental superpower was a, was a great primer, but then I think disunited nations, where Peter went around the world and, and went through each country and outlined their strengths and weaknesses, was a real eye opener for anyone that's read it. You know, you realise that these the stories of China being super powerful and a massive threat. It, 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 there's a lot more grey to it than that. You look at what Peter's written about Russia in the past, and you realize it gives you a whole new perspective on perhaps the reasoning behind Putin doing what he did when, when looking at it through a traditional lens, it makes no sense whatsoever. So again, there are these, there are these generational ties, and, I, and I'll stop talking in a second, I promise you, that are much, much bigger than markets and current leaders that I think we all need to be aware of. And reading people like Neil and people like Peter Zion will give you, if you allow them to challenge your thinking, a much better, more robust, broader framework with which to, to view the sort of smaller decisions that we make on an everyday basis. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I just have kind of one follow-up question um, um, before. I know Jim has lots of uh, interesting questions lined up as well. But but as one follow-up question, which is one thing that I'm kind of struggling with uh, myself, is that I tend to agree with a lot of what Peter has written, um, but I'm also very conscious that he's incredibly bullish on the U.S., and he's not very bullish looking out sort of 10, 15, 20 years on China and Russia. And I'm always I'm always a little bit, maybe it's kind of my my trading experience is that when there's something that's a sure thing, it's not a sure thing. Um, but the thing about the democracy and the resources in terms of the US, we there's no point in debating that. I fully understand that. Um, but I also see when I go to the US, Uh, I work for a firm based in the U.S., so I come on a regular basis. I know you spend a lot of time in the U.S. I also see a country that, at least compared to Swiss standards, looks like it has a pretty rundown infrastructure and is pretty well divided internally. 
how how do you how do you see that from from your perspective? Yeah, I, I, it's such a great question. I'm so glad you brought that up because the the pushback I've always gotten whenever I've interviewed Peter in the past have been people that just write him off. Oh, he's just another one of these America rah 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 guys, and America's better than everybody else. American exceptionalism, and I totally understand why people say that. I think I think to think that and then write off whatever Peter has to say is is incredibly foolish. But I, I, I understand, and I actually asked him the last time I had him on, I asked him that question. I said, you know, people will say to me that you're just an American apologist and you, you think America's better than everybody else. And I think the nuance here is that is that what Peter describes is, in terms of what makes America strong, ex the military, is just its, its independence in energy, its independence in food, the incredible um, river system that it has. You know, there are massive natural and geographical and geological advantages that America has that does make it, and I'm doing this in air quotes, the greatest country on earth. Now, that's nothing that politicians can't screw up. And I think to your point, um, you know, America is in a mess in many, many ways. It's in a mess societally. It's in a mess politically. And, and all that really comes from, you know, if you, if you go back my first trip to America, I would have been probably eight or nine years old. And, um, you know, I, I went to America with my parents. Um, my dad was going over there for business and we, we kind of tacked a family holiday onto the end of it. And America was this land of dreams for me as a kid, you know, I, I, from movies and stuff and just, I, I don't know, America represented something to me. And my first trip there cemented that, cemented my admiration for the country and my love for the country. But it's interesting to look now at what America has become because back then... In the UK, we had this thing, the tall poppy syndrome, where if you if you made it, if you became successful, um, you know, people were jealous and would try and cut you down. And there was always this sense that in America, they applauded you if you if you made it. If you if you if you ended up being able to afford a Rolls Royce, this was always the benchmark when I was a kid in England. If you could afford a Rolls Royce in England, someone would scratch it with their keys because they were jealous. Whereas if you made it in America and you had a big Cadillac, people would ask you, you know, how did you, what did you do to have to get this? How did you? What were your secrets of working hard and earning this? And that's changed. You know, that's changed over time. It's changed over the last half a decade, uh, half a century, sorry. Um, and the state has become more involved in people's lives and made more decisions and and borrowed more money to to provide things. And it's allowed the core of America to to kind of rot on the vine in some ways. And your point about the infrastructure, Niels, is absolutely spot on. You know, you, you I, I lived in Asia for many years and you'd go through airport after airport in, in China and Hong Kong and Singapore, which were just unbelievable facilities. Everything worked. The infrastructure was incredible. And then you'd, you'd, you'd get on a plane in Changi and, and then you'd land at JFK and you'd think, what the hell just happened? You know, I, I've come out into a, what feels like a third world country. It's remarkable. And so America has definitely taken its eye off the ball and spent an awful lot of money they don't have on things they don't need while neglecting the inner kind of turmoil amongst its people, both um, left and right and wealthy and, and not wealthy. And and that, I think, is the difficult part, is to hold those two ideas in your head at the same time, you know, is to be able to recognize the incredible advantages America has that make it this incredibly strong country, but also recognize the deficiency in the decision-making and the leadership that's accumulated over, this is not Joe Biden's fault, it's not Trump's fault, it's not Obama's fault, it's not Bush's fault, it's all of them. You know, going back to Clinton when he had, you know, the first surplus in half a century. 
So it, it's just the greatness that America has is being eaten away by the mediocrity of its political class, unfortunately. So our founding fathers here in the U.S., I'm very much an American, right? I was born in London, lived in Turkey, but I did grow up here, so I'm aware of my biases. But, um, you know, our founding fathers in the U.S. knew this when they kind of broke away from England. Yes, they did. They, uh, they very much created a, a system of checks and balances and realized the corrosive powers of absolute power, right? Um, and um, I think it's very interesting, and I think this is an interesting lead into talking about the Federal Reserve, but... We very much uh, didn't want uh, any extra governmental power um, because we realized that eventually that would lead to greater inequality and, and uh, the lack of movement between classes um, and the very thing that, that you talk about kind of degrading here in the U.S., which I agree with. Um, we created the Federal Reserve to respond to financial crises and to essentially smooth the business cycle, right? The problem is, uh, founding fathers made it very difficult to pass laws here in the U.S. because they, they knew that, uh, you know, otherwise corruption would, would take hold. They needed crises. If you didn't have crises, you wouldn't solve problems, um, here. And so the Federal Reserve has smoothed the business cycle. The problem is we haven't had crises for, you know, the crises are wider and longer. Um, and that's allowed, uh, you know, uh, the corrosion of, uh, you know, absolute power to kind of corrupt the system and inequality to grow. That's my opinion, at least. I'd love to hear your thoughts uh, on kind of the Fed's role in kind of the decline of the U.S., the, the, where we find ourselves now, um, right? And, and, uh, you know, with populism and inequality. Um, and like maybe we'll pull on that thread a little bit and go from there. Well, yeah, it's interesting. But, you know, Keynes spoke about inflation being dangerous because you know not one man in a million could recognize it for what it is and i think the federal reserve suffers from the same thing in that in that everybody's heard of the federal reserve and everybody's familiar with the guys in the suits who stand up on the podium and tell them everything's under control but most people don't really understand what the federal reserve is what their role is why they're there in the first place they just they're the guy, right? They're, the, they're the, the guy in the suit behind the behind the dais, and people tend to defer to those people. And they've been given this twin mandate of stable prices and low unemployment. Uh, they were really brought in as the lender of last resort. That's what they were there to be, to, to, to backstop the system if, if, if people needed to borrow money. But the idea of borrowing money was at uh, punitive rates of interest. The idea was if you needed to borrow money, you, it would be lent to you, but you would have to pay for it. You know, over time, the, the function of the Federal Reserve has become corrupted to, to just be a, a system that, to your words, Jim, about um, smoothing the business cycle, it's not even really been about smoothing it. It's been about making sure that the downward half of the business cycle doesn't happen. And to do that, the answer has been to throw money at it. And obviously, the fact that we live in a, in a fiat system has allowed them enormous latitude to throw money at it. If we were on any kind of hard money standard and, and I, I choose that rather than um, the words gold standard because that triggers so many people but if there were any restraints on the ability to print money and prop up the system we would have a wholly different outcome would there be fewer millionaires yeah probably would there be less inequality absolutely you know would we have had more recessions yes but they probably would have been shallow and they would clean out the dead wood like these things are supposed to do. And we wouldn't have reached the point we're at now, which is in the event of a serious recession, everything goes down. 
you know, the stock market has become dependent upon the Fed, the bond market has become dependent upon the Fed. And this idea, and this comes back to the point about few people really understanding what the Federal Reserve actually do, the idea that they've made capital essentially free for the last, well, three, pick, pick your time frame, but close to three decades, really, when you corrupt the price of money, you corrupt every single transaction that takes place on a daily basis everywhere. And if you have no solid foundation, if there's no truth in the price of money, then you can't have truth in society because everything in society in one way or another comes back to trust in money. And so, you know, when you ask about the Federal Reserve's role in this, they play a much bigger role than the public believe. Um, it's not all their fault because politicians have made fiscal errors as well, but they've been encouraged by this idea that it is possible to print money with abandon and there'll be no ill consequences. You know, we've, we've had 20 years of, oh, we, we need to print more money because inflation's not quite where we want it to be. We all knew that this would ultimately happen. We all knew that ultimately you would not get a smooth 2% inflation and everything would be fine. We all knew that. And, and no one will ever convince me that the people at the Federal Reserve didn't know that. They knew it. They just figured they'd be able to control it. And that's just hubris. So the Federal Reserve... Uh, a lot of the blame can be laid at their door. And, you know, the interesting thing, I, I saw a tweet about this the other day, um, there seems to have overnight been a wall with barbed wire at the top of it erected around the Federal Reserve building in Washington, D.C. In, in the last month or so. Um, I don't know when it happened. I don't know why it happened, but it's it's a very interesting sign to me that they are putting barbed wire around the Federal Reserve because, frankly, if people woke up and understood the Fed's role in this, that barbed wire would be a very, very smart thing to put up around the building. Back to the fourth turning. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think these uh, there's the lack of education about what the Federal Reserve does, the difference between fiscal and monetary policy. Um, you know, this idea that stimulus is stimulus. Uh, people don't understand the difference. And I think that understanding is so critical to understanding where we've been the last 40 years since we really, as you mentioned, moved to a fiat system. You know, the Federal Reserve is the only game in town because especially with the uh, exorbitant privilege of the dollar, we've been able to put money money into the system to, to do supply-side economics, to lower interest rates for capital. And we've created a technological revolution, right, um, which is incredibly deflationary. We've, we've spurred globalization as a result, which has all kicked off this major inequality. And it, it's funny that, as you mentioned, you know, these cycles happen regardless. It's really a tension behind it all of growth uh, on one end, uh, the natural state of competition, right? Survival of the fittest, if you will. And then this idea of fairness on the other side, right? Which is, you know, your mother always told you life isn't fair, but but we are a community where human beings were social creatures. And that left versus right, that, that uh, populism versus capitalism, however you want to kind of paint it, is really the, I think, what drives that that those cycles. But the monetary policy piece is really what allowed that cycle to, um, expand in the way it did this 40-year cycle. Um, uh, and uh, I find it very, um, you know, very, very interesting that regardless of, as you mentioned, of uh, whether or not it's uh, this system or another, that cycle plays out and eventually it becomes let them eat cake, right? Yeah, it, it does. But, the, you know, the, the, the sad part of this is on the other side of that event are wholly good things, Right. This is the big problem with this. You know, the, the cycle turns and 
once you have this clean out and the fourth turning, it's you've got you know forty years of prosperity ahead of you, um, both on a societal basis and and you know in in terms of the the, the wealth of nations. And so, obviously, we come back to that: the, the, the boomer generation don't want to give up the reins of power because it means giving up a lot of the, the the assets they've accumulated during that period. That's where the turmoil comes from. But it's like any tough decision. You know, the sooner you make it, the sooner you can get to the, the clarity on the other side and the ability to clean out the cobwebs and grow. But but we never learn. We don't make those decisions. No, no one is going to step up in front of a microphone and say, you know what? We think what we should do is is we should take the housing market down 50% so that younger people can afford. We are going to, um, you know, start taxing assets. We're going to start transferring the wealth from our generation to your it's just not going to happen unfortunately it, it, it tends to be the young generation saying right well if you're not going to give it to us we're going to take it because that's the only way the cycle can cleanse and, and begin again is 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 to is to get some of the assets get some of the wealth in the hands of the people who have their lives ahead of them and are going to do something with it so it, it's coming whether we like it or not um the question really at this point is is how dramatic and how painful is it going to be? And I would suggest that the decisions being made this time around in terms of prolonging this cycle and, 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 and delaying that, that change of ownership just makes it that much more painful when it occurs, unfortunately. Could there be another way, though? Uh, I've heard people talk about that they believe that inflation will help reduce the inequality. I mean, we rarely lift up the lower-income groups, but during inflationary times, we kind of bring down maybe the the higher uh, income groups uh, a little bit closer to 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 the low income groups does does that have any resonance with with any of you i just i think it's the opposite i, okay. I just don't think that's the case you know what we, what we've seen um for the last 20 years is a very different kind of inflation you know when when, when the average man in the street thinks about inflation right. he's thinking about the cost of filling up his gas tank and the cost of feeding his family what we've seen throughout this period of qe is massive asset price inflation. Um, we've seen it in equity markets, we've seen it in bond markets, we've seen it in real estate all over the world. Um, that's the inflation. But but while the CPI print has been has been kind of moribund, people have been able to say, well, there is no inflation. But of course, the average man in the street doesn't own a huge stock portfolio. They don't own a couple of investment properties. They don't own um, you know a, a big 401k. And so what we've seen is a certain class of people getting much, much wealthier. Now we're seeing good old-fashioned inflation. And you know, I've spoken about this before, but this 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 idea of gas prices going up to, to unaffordable levels is such a problem for policymakers because everybody who has a car, and that's an awful lot of people, has to fill it up with gas. And so you fill it up with gas, you really notice what it costs because there's no apples to oranges comparison here you fill the same car up with the same gas most people at the same gas station every week and one week it's 70 bucks the next week it's 100 bucks and that's very very real and so not only do you do you feel that when you put your credit card in the in the in the pump you drive you get in your car with that in your head thinking wow it's got so expensive to fill my car up and suddenly you notice the price at every gas station you drive by every half a mile wow, it's 20 cents cheaper there. I must remember to go and fill up there next time. Um, and so we've got that kind of inflation now where people are looking at their grocery baskets and thinking, oh, I can't afford to buy a steak this week. I'll have to buy a chicken for the family. And that is you know, anything but um, leveling the playing field. That That is making 
the price of things that people need to be able to live unaffordable. And that doesn't hurt the people who have an awful lot of discretionary wealth at their hands who can go to the grocery store and go, wow, my grocery bill was more expensive this week. They don't have to make any substitutions. They just make a note of it. But it's not affecting them, making them change their decision-making process. And that's where we are. And so I, I think the inflation we have now is going to hit um, the poorer sections of society much, much harder than, uh, than the wealthy. I mean, it's, yeah. it's a flat tax at the end of the day, right, uh, which affects yeah. the, the bottom more. Um, but to, you know, to, your, to your other point, I think it's uh, – we are going to see multiple contraction. I mean, if you look at 1968 to 82, the time period right before this 40-year kind of boom cycle, yep. um, equity markets went nowhere in nominal terms. And, and they lost almost 70% of their value in, in, in real inflation-adjusted terms. So – um, you know, the boom that's happened for the rich and the kind of the compounding, uh, you know, power of, of investment, um, will, in, in my opinion, and I think most people would agree, uh, decline. And I, and I think that force is actually much stronger than, than, than the inflationary push. And I think if anything, uh, politicians will have to respond to the, populist push that will increase even in a time of inflation. We're already seeing it, price controls, all kinds of other fiscal measures. So it's definitely debatable. I I, I think, um, you know, just to be polemical a little bit, I, I do think that during these periods, we do see a normalization. I do think, you know, 68 to 82, we rebuilt the middle class or, or grew, continued to grow the middle class um, here in the U.S. Um, and economic growth was actually quite strong in real terms, despite, uh, you know, the inflationary push and, and how bad markets did. So um, it's it's a great point, but it's interesting to know. We go back to this idea of turnings. You know, it's it's that was an awakening, right? That was post World War II, post the fourth turning. And yes, we had we had you know Kennedy in the White House. We had this 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 rebirth of America in the early sixties. This great idea of hope, the young generation taking over. You know, and that that did change things. It did shift the dynamics. Um, and so. Your, your point is extremely important for people to understand, I think, particularly given what your folks on the stock market. You know, after 1929, it took until the early 50s for the for the Dow to regain its previous high. And, and yet we've become accustomed that stock markets don't go nowhere for 10, 20 years. It, it happens regularly. It's ha- happened throughout history. But we've we've just spent 20 years with it just going in one direction apart from 08, which now just looks like a blip on the chart. Um and so for, for, for people to get comfortable with the idea that, hey, your stock prices may go nowhere for a decade, it's a very difficult mindset for people to, to kind of get into because they just have no experience of it. Like they have no experience of, of, of double-digit inflation. One of the things that I've been thinking of, one of the things that I think also to have happened during the, the fourth turn, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is, is and, and, and I think this is the one thing that, could really change things. Um, and I do believe that uh, even according to Neil's um, calculations, we still have quite a few years to go before the fourth turning is over. Um, but it's this kind of loss of confidence in, say, the Federal Reserve and other institutions. And um, if we just take a sort of a simple uh, way of, of looking at that, you know, when has the Federal Reserve usually had, you know, when 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 have people have little confidence in the Federal Reserve? Could be when interest rates were really high, like in the late sort of 70s, early 80s, before Volcker came in, expect or confidence was low. But at the same time, when we have very low interest rates, like we've had for the past decade or so, 
generally speaking, I think the market has had quite a lot of confidence in the Fed's ability to manage this. So it kind of, for me, ties in with this period of time ahead of us where interest rates could go a lot higher than anyone can think right now and that we lose this confidence in these institutions at the same time as we go through this fourth turning. That's kind of how I see it. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And if you think about it, it's ironic that that confidence in central banks, in the Federal Reserve, should be at its highest when interest rates are at their highest because that means they're doing something proactive to choke off a problem for society. When confidence in the Federal Reserve has been at its highest, it's when interest rates have been at their lowest, which is really uh, the, the part of the policy cycle where they've been abject in the way they've handled these crises by simply continuing to lower rates. And that that idea of the loss of faith in institutions is absolutely a key feature of of the fourth turning. I mean, just just look look at what happened. I mean, Neil Neil and Neil and Bill wrote this book in the late nineties, and they they pegged 2008 as the beginning of the next fourth turning. Obviously, these dates are, are imprecise, but it's interesting that, that that started with, obviously, the global financial crisis the same way a previous fourth turning started with the Wall Street crash in 1929. And this erosion of trust in institutions since then has been amazing to watch. You know, in, in financial circles... Uh, the lack of confidence in the Federal Reserve has grown um, and, and it started to include an awful lot more people. There were people calling the Fed out long before it became fashionable to do so. But look at the last year. You know, the pandemic comes. Look at the levels of trust in government. Look at the levels of trust in the CDC, in the WHO. You know, all these institutions which prior to the last two years were not really thought about so much. They were just, it was assumed that the CDC were there doing their job and keeping us all safe and the WHO doing the same. But now that trust has been shattered by the last by the last couple of years. And it's not been shattered for everybody, but it's caused division. And there are now people who, if you bring up the CDC, will get really animated about the, the quote-unquote crimes they've committed against the American public and stuff. So we're seeing all this stuff play out. We're seeing this loss of faith in institutions. And, and Niels, it, it's a key, key pillar of how a fourth turning unfolds because for, for institutions to be brought down and rebuilt in the image of a younger generation, how they feel that the, these institutions should be created, it requires this to happen. It requires the faith to go. It requires the, the tearing down of old institutions and the rebuilding in the light of a new generation. And look, it's it's happening. Um, it's happening right in front of our eyes. Hmm. Clearly the man who put up the barbed wire in front of the Fed has read the fourth turning. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. or, or his brother's got a barbed wire factory. I don't know. I think it's very important. Um, you know, you alluded to a couple times, but to understand the generational divide that exists. Um, and in my view, again, this really ties back to monetary policy, right? This inequality has been driven by, you know, capital uh, appreciating, right? Uh, inflation of, of, of investments, which were held primarily by the boomer kind of generation. And the younger generation, millennials on down, um, have the smallest kind of down payments, the less, the smallest nest egg of, of all time, you know, in, in American history here. Uh, well, not all times, but back to, uh, you know, the 1900, early 1900s. And, and so it's important to understand the distrust of government, um, is greatest in that group. 
Um, and that explains a lot, right? It explains crypto. Um, they've also grown up in a time of technological revolution driven by monetary policy, right? Because capital was free uh, and 40-year outcomes is what was, uh, you know, rewarded. So, you know, this idea that, you know, technology can solve all our problems yet the system is broken. It's essentially what crypto is. It's a, it's a kind of a religious expression of that, not to mention a, a desire to catch up because they're so far, far behind. So I'm curious to hear your thoughts on, uh, you know, I feel like a podcast these days without talking about a little bit just of your, your thoughts on crypto and how that might play out in the fourth turning or, or whatever uh, we're in. Um, you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Well, it's it's a subject I, I, I don't spend an awful lot of time on, to be honest, um, simply because for me, I, I have enough skepticism to not drink the Kool-Aid and, and believe that Bitcoin will be the savior of the world and solve every problem that, that is put in front of us. I understand um, the kind of bones of it. I understand the ideal of it. I think it's great. I think um, what it set out to try and do and the problems it set out to try and mitigate are are commendable. But it's been hijacked. You know, it's been hijacked into, as you say, a religion. And I have tremendous problems with anything that's that's religion-based, particularly in investing. And so, you know, I, I, I look at what's going on in, in the world of crypto. I've seen, I've watched with, with, I have to say, tremendous angst what's happened these last couple of weeks with the, with the Terra Luna meltdown and seeing all these stories of people losing everything on these, on these stable coins, you know, including personal friends of mine who, who have suffered greatly and, and, and lost money that it, it will take them decades to make back, hopefully. So, you know, I look at that and I, and I, I look at how that happened and, and the speed with which that happened. And, and it, it just tells me that the regulators surely have to step in at some point and stop that happening. It's, it's one thing to, to be able to invest in something and for it to go to zero, but for it to go to zero overnight with no chance to risk manage, with no chance to take your position down, with no chance to say, look, you know, I'm, I'm too big here. I, I want to cut my losses and get out. Um, in to the tune of tens of billions of dollars, it seems derelict for regulators not to step in and and do something material about this. So, you know, I, I try and steer away from the crypto conversation, it, it, partly because I, I fully admit that my knowledge is nowhere near where it needs to be to have uh, any kind of voice in, on the subject that, that people should listen to. Um, and that stems from the fact that, again, at the very, at the very early days of it, I realized that if I wanted to really understand crypto, in a way that that would make me a credible person to talk about it, I would have to devote an awful lot of time, not only to understanding it, but but to stay current with it. And I just don't a have enough time to do that properly, and b have enough desire to. You know, I'm of the generation that thinks about getting rich slow, not getting rich quick. You know, I'd rather get rich slow and stay rich than try to get rich quick. And, and I think. One of the things that crypto is, to your point, Jem, is, is um, it's, a, it's a way for people to, in their eyes, even the, the scales out and, and, and make the kind of money they need, need, not want. They need to be able to get on the housing ladder or, or, or to buy that car or to, or to get married or whatever it may be. And, you know, you come back to the institutions and you, this idea that, that is being floated around everywhere you look about, oh, you know, in the future, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, right? This is this has been a, a, a war cry of, I don't know if it's, I think it's maybe the WEF, um, the World Economic Forum, the, the, the Davos crowd, 
this idea and you see this headline you see these articles planted about the future oh, you know you'll be eating bugs and you know they're going to be good for you and you're going to own nothing and be happy and, you know that to me is the last roll of the dice is that if we can convince you that you don't need to own anything and you'll be happier than you were then we can win we we can we can keep all the wealth that we've accumulated you won't need it because you will think you'll be happier i just don't think that's going to work and while crypto began as a, an expression of that that frustration I think it's been co-opted, and, and my friend Ben Hunt writes brilliantly about this, how Bitcoin has been co-opted into a Wall Street product. And you know, he, he talks about Bitcoin becoming Bitcoin TM, you know, this, this kind of show-tune version of Bitcoin that, that is, is being co-opted to make Wall Street richer. And, and sadly, I think he's right to a great extent. So you know, crypto has still got a long way to go, but I suspect that the amount of pain that's going to come in crypto will lead to some crazy regulation, some crazy overreach by authorities, people writing to their congressman about how much money they've lost in a stable coin and you know, do something about it. And so I think, I think there's a lot of hard yards ahead for crypto and that something will come out the other side of it. I just don't know that it's Bitcoin. And, you know, one of the sim most simplistic ways of looking at that I've heard is, is from a guy who, um, called David Dore, who I had on my podcast, and, and David is... is very pro blockchain and he made the simple he asked me the simple question he said you know when you think about crypt crypto as a technology and it's it's championed by a lot of people that have rich technology backgrounds this seems to be the first technological advancement in history where everybody's convinced that version 1.0 is it you know what what's bitcoin 2.0 gonna look like 3.0 4.0 and that to me is is kind of one of the foundations, misguided or otherwise, of my own thinking around it. It's like I just don't believe that technology version 1.0 is is the be all end all. I think something else will emerge. I couldn't agree more. I mean, it's um, you know clearly it's speculative. Clearly, um, it's uh, been co-opted as any other currency pretty much in history has been uh, for you know by the sponsors or the sources of power, right? Um, uh, that said, I think, uh, you know, I'm open and I've, I've been thinking a lot more about, you know, crypto's role as this fairness kind of tool. It is, in a way, the new America for this generation, right? It is this resting of, of power from, from the top. And, uh, what that means is all, you know, it's, I'm sure the British were very skeptical of America, right? Uh, like it's naturally, uh, you know, cynical, you know, we're naturally cynical and, and skeptics. Um, but if this is bad enough, right, maybe, uh, you know, maybe that source of freedom in some way ends up being more important, especially for this generation. Again, I'm, I'm a bit of a cynic like, like yourself, but I do like talking about it because I think it is an important topic because sure. it's, it's uh, kind of owned by this, the generation that's coming to power, essentially. I want to try and shift gear to maybe something about central banking 2.0. But before I do that, I just want to pick up on one thing you said, Grant, and that's this, that we see uh, some players in the crypto space. Um, you know, people, I don't mind naming them, are people like Michael Saylor, for example, where I think that the way he might, you know, have a good cause in terms of new technology and all of that stuff. But I just think the way it, it, it comes out where it just seems like reckless risk taking with no risk management whatsoever. But what I and, and and I see that a lot in that space, but what I'm also seeing is it's starting to spill over to our world 
when I look at someone like Kathy Wood. I mean, what on earth are you doing in terms of looking after your client's money? Um, the way the, the 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 things that are being bought, the things that are being sold, and the level of volatility in the products. So, so I don't know if it's it's a sign of the times or if it's just people getting inspired of what's going on in the crypto space and then they're implementing something uh, on that side. It, it wasn't really a question, but, but I do see some of these tendencies um, spilling over a little bit. But I do want to try and shift gear to kind of central banking 2.0 and I want to talk about the role of the yen because um, one of my previous guests, I'm sure he's also been on your podcast, uh, David Dredge, he put out a piece um, this morning, I think I received it, where he talked about what's going on uh, at the BOJ and the the rate they're buying uh, JDBs uh, on at the moment. I think they're, they already own 67% of all JDBs. And at the speed they're buying them right now, because they're doing this yield curve control, they could essentially buy the rest in 50 days or something like that. It's a relatively short period of time. And I was just wondering if any of you have an idea of what happens if a central bank ends up buying all the bonds. Yeah, it's such a fascinating question. And and Bill Fleckenstein and I have done, we're, we're still doing an entire series called The Endgame on this because we're trying to figure yeah. out exactly the answer to that question. Look, so far... Just the, 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 I believe they call it the TLDR these days. We haven't figured it out yet. But the, you know, the, the, the BOJ is fascinating, right? Because they've, they've been doing this for some time. They've been, they've been um, instituting yield curve control for some time at the BOJ uh, and pegging that 10-year effectively at zero. And they've gotten away with it for quite some considerable amount of time. Right? They've been able to, to buy JGBs and, and stand there, uh, bid for an unlimited amount, and what happened? The market backed off. And there were days when the 10-year JGB didn't trade. Zero. Zero volume going through in, in the 10-year bond of a G7 nation. It's, it's, it's unfathomable for any of us who have spent any time in markets. And at my very first uh, job on the trading desk was in the JGB uh, desk back in, in 1986 uh, when they had yield. So, But it's been fascinating to watch them be able to do this and the yen be rock solid, right? Because all the time those of us looking at it thinking, well, something's got to give here, right? Something's got to give. Uh, the Aussie Central Bank, the RBA, they went out and pegged the two or three-year um, part of the curve. It's the 10-year, but uh, to 2024 or something like that. Right, right. But but what was interesting with the with the RBA is they capitulated. You know, the RBA right. tried this experiment, they capitulated. And if anyone looks at the chart of the two-year yield of the Australian government bond, you'll see what happens when yield curve control fails. I mean, it, it's an unbelievable chart for, for a two-year government security. Now Japan comes along, they've been quietly doing this, and everyone said, well, you know, it doesn't matter with Japan because the, the JGB market is all owned domestically and it, it, there's no foreign creditors, it's not a problem, and blah, blah, they'll be able to do this. Well, hey, presto, you know, now we're looking at this, they're still doing that, and suddenly the market's not backing off. And suddenly this is being seen in the yen. We've seen the yen weaken dramatically. Again, a 20% move in a, in a G7 currency in a year is almost unfathomable. I mean, it happens, but it generally happens for very, very bad reasons. And so we're going to find out, I think, now with, with Corotasan and, and the BOJ, what do they do? Do they continue to stand bid for an unlimited size of JGB and end up owning the entire market? Uh, and if they do, what happens to the yen? But then we get to this this sixty four thousand dollar question: is is what happens if they do own all the JGBs? And, and you know, the, Bill and I have talked about this at length. And, and do they just 
do a swap between the, the Bank of Japan and the MOF? Is there a, a perpetual zero coupon bond written between the two and the whole thing gets written off? And if that happens, it's like did the, if the tree fell in the forest and no one heard it, did it really make a sound? We don't know. I mean, none of us know because we've never crossed this Rubicon before. If they do that, technically speaking, the Bank of Japan's balance sheet is pristine. But what does that actually mean? Because we all kind of know what's really happened here. But if you if you think about what's been going on for the last 20 years, we've all kind of known what's happening here. And it's like, well, if you don't tell us, we'll pretend we don't know and we'll all carry on the same way. And, and, and people tend to not want to confront these things until they have to. So maybe they could pull off this magic trick and do the swap and everyone kind of goes, okay, and maybe the yen gets stronger. You can make a case for both. One thing that we know is if that happens, we'll find out. And Japan is ahead of the curve. They're ahead of the ECB. They're ahead of the Fed in terms of where this is going. And the, the dynamics of the domestic, uh, the government bond markets in each place are vastly different to the yen. So it's, again, not apples to apples. But I suspect the Japanese are going to be forced to try something like this. And it's going to be an experiment for everybody, including us. And I dare say when it happens, the market will probably blink for a moment and not have the first idea about what to do about it. But just like we've seen with the yen here, which has been stable for you know a long, long time, suddenly people are thinking, you know, there's a chance here. There's a chance that they're weakened. There's a chance that there's a trade to be had. There's some money to be made here. And we're going to go. You know, I just spoke to Tian Yang of Variant Perception in London. And for the first time, those guys are talking about, you know, maybe this widow maker trade being short JGBs. Right, yeah. <laughs> it might actually be the time. And that has been the Widowmaker trade for two decades. Um, everybody's gone broke shorting the JGBs. But when you look at what's happening with the yen, something shifted in the last six months. Mm. Um, something shifted in the last two or three months with the yen. And so you can see the market sniffing around thinking, okay, this is different now, so maybe we'll start pushing the boundary. And that, coming back to where we started with central banks, that's the one thing they've had in their favor that's kept them in business longer perhaps they should have been is that the market hasn't had the courage to test them. And I think I get the sense that's going to change. Look, we've seen Philip Lowe, the governor of the RBA, apologize for the hapless performance of the RBA over this, this yield curve fiasco and the resultant inflation that's, that's caught them by surprise. Last week, we saw Andrew Bailey, the governor of the Bank of England, testifying um, in London, saying um, that he was shocked at the surging food prices and helpless in the, face, in the face of surging inflation. The next day, we saw one of the ministers saying that he was shocked, that the Bank of England was shocked at all this sort of stuff. So the vulnerability is starting to show. We've had Jay Powell say, well, with the benefit of hindsight, we maybe should have acted sooner. So this is like the, the you know, the, the, I always go back to this idea of, of how a Komodo dragon kills its prey. You know, it bites the prey once, and then it knows that the, the venom in its saliva is going to kill it. So it just follows it. It just follows the prey until the prey falls down and dies and eats it. And it feels like we're at one of those points in markets where the Federal Bank, Federal Reserve uh, chairman and other central bankers around the world are finally showing signs of vulnerability. The yen is telling us something is changed and, and there's a vulnerability there. And so I, I get the sense that amidst everything else, that's going to be a test. I think central banks are about to be tested 
gently at first, but if they continue to show weakness, then I suspect those tests will get uh, will get bigger and stronger for them. And I just don't know that they have the ability to to deal with that. Well, as you know, Grant, I mean, we've had all these stress tests of banks and financial institutions for the past 15 years. The only ones who have not been stress tested is, in fact, the central banks. Great point. Uh, so Great that's point. one thing. The other thing that reminds me about the dollar-yen, I seem to recall a conversation you had um, with your good friend, Felix, who's actually who lives in Zouk, where, where I live. And I think he said in the conversation to you when you asked him, so what are you looking for as a sign? He said, I just watched the dollar-yen. And I know, of yeah. course, he, yeah, uh, yeah it, so that's one thing. And I don't know whether you caught up with him. I know he was expecting quite a lot of equity downside this first half of, of 2022, about 30%. That's certainly playing out well. I don't know if you caught up with him recently, have, but yeah, everything he said, yeah. No, okay. I, I spoke to Felix a couple of weeks ago and, um, you know, his his framework is fantastic. You know, Felix is one of these guys that that is a huge proponent of cycle work. And he has all these overlapping right. cycle frameworks that help him kind of come up with the whole of the framework. You know, Felix expects um, markets, the S&P, to, to decline to around the 3,000 level. But then he thinks we could see a, a, a face-ripping rally. He thinks the S&P could double yeah. uh, into 2024. And then he thinks that in 2025, that's when we get the big 19... 29-style meltdown where, where markets sure. go down. You know, I don't want to put numbers in his head, but the way I took it from what he said, you know, 85 90%. Yeah, so he, he definitely has that framework, and, and I know he watches the dolly-in uh, very, very closely. And I think when you have something like the dolly-in that so many people watch closely and it's done nothing for such a long time, that's why I think when you see it make a move like it's made in the last couple of months – a lot of people wake up and go, okay, something's happening here. I'm not quite sure what it means. Maybe it's Japan-specific, but it's unlikely to be Japan-specific. What does it mean? I don't know, but something has changed. Uh, this this steady currency has now moved 20%, and that tells me we're in a new macro environment. And you know, every macro trader I've spoken to in the last couple of months is just salivating at the potential opportunities that the kind of the loss of these steady markets might bring to them. Now, it's going to be a terrible, terrible time for retail investors who are used to passive and are buying the Kathy Wood stories and, and are buying all these wonderful stories about progress and technology and 50% returns. What the environment we're likely to go into if past fourth earnings or anything to go by is one where you want to have professionals managing your money. You want to have guys who know what they're doing and know how markets can swing both directions rather than a generally trending upward market with the occasional kind of blip. You're going to see things happen, I suspect, in the next five to 10 years that most people who've come late to markets over this last couple of years of kind of frenzied speculation think are either impossible or when they happen completely unfair. And they'll want someone to step in and and fix it for them and, and recover their losses and i just i think we're into into a very very different environment and and the the dollar yen rate is just a, a very tiny canary in an enormous coal mine yeah and i should for good order say that it's felix Zulaf that we were talking about yeah. referencing yeah, sorry. Uh, in that sense jim where do you want to go because i have got a completely different asset class i want to ask uh, grant about later but uh, where do you want to go jim i mean i could keep pulling on the finance side. I'll, I'll say one last thing about that and then what we can kind of uh, move on, but uh, I do think it's important that so few people truly understand 
monetary policy and the creation of dollars, people think that creating dollars uh, on the monetary side is inflationary. And I think it's been well documented that by this point, we understand that it hasn't been inflationary because that money never really enters the economy. The velocity of that money has been zero, um, actually somewhat negative um, because I, I use the analogy of money, money has been going to planet Palo Alto for 20 years, uh, actually almost 40 years. And that money doesn't enter our planet. Uh, instead, they send us technological, you know, uh, advancements, you know, they send us Ubers and Amazons and Teslas, right? And those things are actually deflationary. Um, and the money never hits our shores. So the, the, the difference, what's changed is, is that money, helicopter money has now started. Fiscal policy has started. Real dollars with velocity of one have been entering the economy. And, and we had an order of magnitude greater fiscal stimulus in the last two years than we've had ever in the United States in real inflation-adjusted terms. I mean, adjusted for the size of the economy, the the $12 trillion that we've passed here in the U.S. is about the size of the New Deal. The New Deal, you know, filled a decade-long hole called the Great Depression. Look around you. This is not the Great Depression. Um, so I, I do think, in reference to the JGB, you know, the yen and 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 what they're going to do, I think there is a there's a, bad, a broad misconception of of if they just make that money go away, that that's somehow inflationary. Uh, the reality is. They never, that money never entered the economy. That money never was here. Instead, it stimulated, uh, investment and, and that investment, uh, you know, fiscal stimulus, the, the price of money going up will, will be the ultimate problem, in my opinion. Anyway, my, my two cents there are just to kind of add a different perspective. Well, you know, but Chem, it's, it's worth, but it, but it is worth just making one more point on that because I think you're absolutely right. But, but it's amazing how we had that, well, one or two rounds of stimulus checks going straight to the public in the middle of the pandemic and you know within 18 months we've got eight percent inflation so it just shows you how dangerous that can be if it's injected straight into the veins of the economy and of course now you've done that people are going to want more the next time there's a problem they're going to want the stimulus check they're not going to want this stuff going to going to, to banks again yeah, and this is how it ties into that kind of fourth turning and the, it's, it's populism that's really the issue here, right? Underneath this all, this monetary fiscal, we can talk about this, but monetary is the, the lever of, of, uh, you know, the, the wealthy and the, the powerful and the strong in a sense, you know, the, and that's gone too far. And now populism is, you know, whether you're in the U.S., Donald Trump or, or Bernie Sanders, you've gone left, right? Uh, uh, and you've got yeah. left, uh, you know, far, far left. And, and, and that populism is really the issue at hand here. And that is how these cycles play out. And, and ultimately, um, you know, anyway, that's uh, kind of to connect all, all those those threads we've been pulling on. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if the MMT crowd still don't think that um, there is a limit to how much money you can put out in the system. Um, but who knows? We'll, we'll find out. I, I want to shift gear a little bit because, as I mentioned, um, I, uh, I am a, a very happy subscriber to your work, uh, Grant. And in your recent newsletter, you you took a stab at a asset class that actually is probably bigger than any of the ones we normally talk about. Um, we Many, many people will have exposure to it one way or the other, um, but we don't talk about it so much. And by the way, um, you know, thanks for the shout out in your newsletter for our conversation with uh, Adam uh, Rosenzweig, by the way. But it is real estate that I'm talking about. Um, and I would love to hear kind of your thoughts as to what you see happening. I noticed, for example, that uh, we have sales of existing homes in the US that fell in April 2.4%, the lowest, uh, or oh, it's down to the lowest level now in two years. But 
you looked at it more broadly, but I'm also obviously interested in in sort of your just general thoughts about where where that can fit in in the puzzle of what we've been talking about today. Yeah, I mean, look, real estate by I mean, and I'm using Felix Zulaf's calculations here is a, is almost a four hundred trillion dollar asset class, um, which is remarkable. Um, and it's also a million local markets. Wow. You know, it's, it's it's very tough to have a. There is no global real estate market. There aren't even really national real estate markets. You know, we're, we're here in the United States, there are there are some pockets of incredibly strong local real estate markets. At the same time, some really terrible ones. So it's a really interesting asset class and, and one that um, people hold two views. They hold a very local view and they hold a very broad view. And um, I remember my friend Steve Diggle showing me a survey that was taken shortly before the the kind of housing bubble burst in the US back in uh, 07. And they surveyed a whole bunch of people, and I forget the exact numbers, but but I'll be in the ballpark. But it was um, you know like 75% of people thought housing prices were going to fall in the coming year, and 95% of people felt their house wasn't. And so that that's kind of real estate in a nutshell. I think I think people have opinions about the real estate market. In their local market, everything's fine because they understand the neighborhood. They understand, oh, yeah, 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 I know this place. This, this place is fine. I mean, I, I feel bad for those people down the road in in uh, Shelbyville, but here in Springfield, everything's going to be fine. And so, I, you know, I, when I was writing that piece, I was looking initially at Australia, New Zealand, and Canada, you know, three property markets which... Um, for anyone not familiar with them, if you're familiar with the kind of levels of uh, affordability that, that the US got to in 2008, these three countries are on a whole different plane. The unaffordability of housing in Australia, Canada, and New Zealand is quite shocking when you look into it in terms of you know, the ratio of house price to median income and house per household debt to net disposable income. It, it, it's extraordinary. The, the charts just will, will, will make your teeth itch. Um, and finally, we're starting to see signs that those property markets are beginning to crack. And this was before the recent edict coming out of China, which we'll talk about in a second. That came after I published that piece. But uh, because of inflation and, and this idea of inflation returning, I think, is is so important for people to understand because it's the one thing, it, it, and it always was, you know, to your point, Jim, about the fact that we didn't have it, it was the only saving thing for the central banks. They didn't have inflation because once you have inflation, you have to deal with it because it's a political problem. You know, this, this uh, populism doesn't come out of nowhere. Populism begins because people feel disenfranchised and because they feel like they can't feed their families. And so the return of inflation really means that if you decide to continue with low rate policies, inflation's going to get worse. If inflation gets worse, people are going to get angry and politicians are going to get voted out of office at the very best, if not chased through the streets with, with burning pitchforks. And so this is a problem that has to be dealt with. And the only way to choke off inflation is to raise the cost of money. That's just how it works. And so Australia, New Zealand, Canada are finding themselves uh, with central banks that are desperately trying to raise interest rates to choke off inflation. And they're doing that in countries where there is so much leverage in the property sector that the two of them cannot possibly coexist. We're seeing this in Australia. We're seeing it in New Zealand. We haven't quite seen it in Canada yet, even though Canada may be the most egregious of the three. And then we saw this past week, um, 
China come out and say that no CCP officials will be allowed to hold assets overseas, either in their own names or in family names. And an extraordinary amount of that capital sits in real estates, uh, sits in real estate in places like Canada, Vancouver particularly, in Sydney, in Melbourne, in Auckland. So there's another massive headwind for those property markets. You know, if you look at the US, and this was kind of the, the conclusion of that piece, if you look at the US housing markets, it's nowhere near as bad, given the fact that they did delever in, in 2008. There is a structural shortage of housing in the United States. There's, there's no two ways about that. And also, people can fix their mortgage rates for 30 years in the US. You, you can't do that in Australia. You can't do that in New Zealand. And, and as far as I understand, you can't do it in Canada. So you, you, you have a stability to the US housing market that you just don't have elsewhere. And, you know, Ben Bernanke famously talked about how we, we've never had a nationwide fall in house prices just before 08. Um, this is a, a mindset that's, that's very prevalent in Australia, very prevalent in New Zealand and Canada, that house prices only go one way. Um, but of course, that idea has been fostered and inculcated in a rate where, in a, in a time where interest rates only went one way, and that was down. So guess what? Um, if inflation comes back, it changes the direction of interest rates, and that will change the direction of housing. So I, I suspect that in some of these wildly overpriced markets, you are going to see some dramatic falls in pricing. But but it but it happens in a very specific way. You know, the first thing that happens is the bids kind of dry up because people can't get financing. Then the bids. Instead of people saying, oh, I want to buy that house, I'm just going to borrow an extra 50 grand because it doesn't cost me anything to borrow an extra 50 grand, it's an extra 25 bucks a month, that's fine, I can afford that. The price goes up, so the bids start to get more realistic. So first the bids go away, then the bids get more realistic, and there's a big air pocket between the offer, who are still pricing it off where they thought the housing market was, and the bid, who are now having an affordability problem, so they bid what they can, not what they want to. And then you have this stalemate. So you get nothing for a while until the price of the increased mortgage starts feeding through to the sellers and they realize, well, actually, I now need to sell this house. So they go back to the buyers and say, hey, you know, that bid 20% below, is that still there? And then the buyers smell blood in the water. And so you, you see how this thing unfolds. And it's the same everywhere. And it's starting to happen in, in local communities, in local markets that have been hot and have seen interest cool off and have seen, particularly in Australia, if you, if you look in on Twitter, you'll see plenty of houses being shown that, you know, were 1.4 million six months ago, and they're now asking for offers of over a million. And those are the kind of moves that you can expect to see in real estate. Um, and, and I think that particular cycle is just beginning, but it's going to be playing out in places that aren't the front page. It's not going to be playing out necessarily in the United States, apart from pockets, but it will be playing out in the UK um, and Australia, Canada, New Zealand, um, and some other really hot property markets that have no right being as expensive as they are it's very interesting and 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 it's not just i think the uh the communist party that uh, where you can't own a, a property abroad now it seems if you're an oligarch uh, you shouldn't own a property abroad either but for other reasons um yeah absolutely now we we need to wind down we know you have a busy time ahead of you but i i would like to just touch on one other asset class if i may because uh 
because you, you you can speak to all of them. And that is a little bit about the commodity super cycle. And you can kind of pick your, your part of the commodity um, spectrum that you want to highlight perhaps. But uh, again, speaking of, of uh, our conversation with uh, Adam uh, last week, uh, I saw in their Q1 report that came out, I think also maybe yesterday, they were looking at this, they had created this chart, they've gone back 100 years plus and created this chart where you look at the uh, Goldman Sachs Commodity Index versus the Dow Jones. And even when we think about commodities right now, we think about how much they've gone up in price in the last 18 months. But when you look at this chart, it's still so undervalued. I mean, it's literally uh, um, among the lowest uh, levels in more than 100 years. On top of that, they talk about this is maybe the first time in the second half of 2022, it might be the first time where OPEC have no more spare capacity. They cannot change their output even if they want it. And of course, then we have the whole food crisis where we know crops are being put in place right now, but where there are severe droughts in many places uh, like China, uh, Brazil, uh, the U.S., and we've had some other uh, problems in Canada, et cetera, et cetera. So when you look at the whole commodity space, when you look at the potential dangers, whether it be energy crisis, food crisis, how do you think about all of that you know, on top of everything else we've talked about? It's funny. I haven't seen that chart, but I, I can, I reckon I could paint a pretty accurate picture of it in my, <laughs> in my mind's eye, knowing what I know. Um, you know, my friend Tony Deedon talks about uh, the fact that we've been living through an age of virtual. And as we've moved more towards virtual, we've kind of lost sight of virtue. And by virtue, he means mm. real things. And like every cycle, like like the turnings we talked about at the beginning of the show, that's changing. And 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 this idea that we've all become enamored with that we can we can embrace virtual, we can embrace free money that's just printed out of thin air and there's no substance behind it, that changes too. You know, and, and and people do start going back to the fact that well, I, okay, I now realise that I can't actually feed myself with printed money. I need to exchange it for food, and that's not so easy to print as it turns out. Despite what Beyond Meat and the others will will perhaps tell you, so I, I think that's exactly right. This is another cyclical change. We are moving into a period where people will start to value the real over the over the virtual people will want food they'll want raw materials and they won't want nfts and they won't want you know whatever bonds from companies that have no right being in business and paying them a two percent yield just because the price is going to go up and that's a huge problem because if we do have a massive swing back on a societal level to understanding what's real and what's important we're not equipped to to satisfy that demand. There's no way on earth we can satisfy that demand, and that's what we're starting to see. And we're starting to see it play out in places like Sri Lanka, you know, where where we're seeing riots and we're seeing government building being um, being raided, and we're seeing politicians' cars being thrown in rivers and politicians being beaten in the streets. Why? Because the people are hungry, and you know, this is China's Achilles heel. If they can't feed the population, they've got a real problem on their hands. Uh, and I think Adam and the guys are absolutely right. This is this is a super cycle. Jeff Curry talked about this on, on my friend Dimitri Kofinis' Hidden Forces podcast recently, and Jeff's just such a great guy to listen to about this stuff. I mean, he's, he's such an authority on it. I, I had the pleasure of talking to him a few months ago. This is a super cycle, and, and in super cycles, 
people have to get the idea that they can run for decades. And people tend not to think about interest rates as a super cycle, but that's what they've been. You know, interest rates have been trending lower. Bond yields have been trending lower for 40 years. That was a super cycle and it's turned. And rates now, the pressure on them is to go higher. The need for them is to go higher, whether it's to compensate savers, whether it's to choke off inflation, whether it's to bring down excesses, rates need to go higher. And whilst that's unlikely to be a multi-decade thing, time gets compressed when interest rates are rising. You, know, you, saw, you, you saw a decade in the 70s where interest rates went um, higher, but really it was just the end of that decade. It wasn't, the rates didn't go, didn't gradually go higher over a decade. They, they stalled and stalled and stalled, and then they had to play catch up. Um, they could have done it over a decade and it would have been much smoother. But nobody wants rising interest rates. Well, we're there. Uh, along with rising interest rates is going to go um, rising commodity prices. It's, it's, just, it's just the place of the cycle we're in, and people need to understand it's not a choice. It's not something that we can suddenly decide we're going to change. We are entering a period where there is going to be an awful lot more demand for commodities, not just for people to feed themselves, but also to stockpile. Um, if, if the Ukraine-Russia thing has shown one thing, it's that you better have stockpiles of energy, you better have stockpiles of food um, because something could happen that's completely unpredictable and unexpected that changes everything. So I, I, you know, I, think, I think gold will be a big part of this. I think there will be, a, 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 again, a cyclical change in a term of people rejecting fake fiat money and wanting real money, which is which is gold. And to some people, crypto, that's that's their choice. Some people think that believe that to be real money. That's absolutely fine. I've got no problem with that. But yeah, this this idea of a transition from the age of the virtual to the age of the virtuous is a is a really simple but effective way of thinking about it, I think. And 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 that that means you know higher for longer. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, Grant, maybe before we um, sort of wind down completely, we've been talking about many different topics um, and taking you in, in many different directions. Is there anything you feel that we may have missed that you think right now is is also quite topical that you want to kind of bring up before we wind down? Oh boy, look, I, th I guess the beauty and the frustration of the times we live in right now is that by the time we hang up the microphone and you edit this and put it out tomorrow, whenever you put it out, there'll be five things that we could have spoken about. I, I, I will I will say one thing um, that, that's worth talking about. And this is kind of a bee I've had in my bonnet for some considerable amount of time. And some people think it's frivolous. Some people think it's funny. I, I don't know. And that, But that's the, 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 the fate and the fortune of Elon Musk. I think this is important because it's not about Tesla. It's not about SpaceX, it's not even about Musk himself, it's about confidence. You know, you brought up Kathy Wood earlier on, mm -hmm. and she's become the poster child for this phenomenon in the investment industry. But Elon Musk represents something much bigger. You know, Elon Musk was this guy, this crazy, brilliant guy who was changing the world and, and doing all these good things for society. And you can see what's happening with his narrative arc. You know, there were plenty of skeptics about him, myself included, who didn't believe the hype, didn't buy into all of it, and, and would gladly point out many of the places where the, the common narrative was flawed uh, to be met by, um, you know, a, a torrent of abuse from people that, that just wouldn't have it, that, that this guy could be anything other than the potential saviour of society who's going to you know, lead us to Mars and do all these wonderful things. 
And my friend Peter Atwater talks about this, the importance of confidence, and, and nowhere has this been more manifest than in the confidence in Elon Musk. And if you're paying attention to the, the Musk story and you see what's happened with the, the Twitter takeover and now these kind of allegations that are being made against him, uh, his kind of separation from the Democratic Party and his move to the Republican Party, there is something dramatic happening with Elon Musk. His standing in the public conscious is changing. And it's happening right in front of our very eyes. And so when you read stories about Elon Musk, try to step back from them and, and understand what they're saying in the broader sense is that this great showman to some, this great charlatan to many, the public perception is shifting more from showman gently at first towards charlatan. And I think that's such a, a huge symbol for the shift in the times we're seeing where someone like Musk who encapsulated everything that the era that we've just gone through was about, right? He was about being bold and reckless and ignoring rules and, you know, writing his own script. And his company was the embodiment of everything that zero cost of capital represented. You, you could burn through cash for years and no one really cared. They'd still give you the benefit of the doubt as long as you're doing wonderful things. Not so much anymore, right? It, things are going to have to mean something again. And the promise of self-driving cars that you got away with for a year after year after year, your feet are going to be held to the fire suddenly because people want real. They don't want virtual. They don't want fake anymore. I want a real self-driving car. And why haven't you delivered to, to me? So I, I would say watch Elon Musk. And, and you know, I'm, I'm on record as being a huge skeptic of this. This isn't me just saying, oh, you know, banging the same drum. I think the tide is turning around him. And I think as the tide turns around him, it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous clue as to how the broader times are changing. And, and if the times are changing and, the, and people are repudiating Elon Musk and everything he stands for, you can take that on a broader society level and understand what does that mean for the things that will be repudiated in, in society. And it will be showmanship and it will be braggadocio and it will be ego and hubris and all these things that... Um, markets going one way have fostered, that's going to change. And it comes back to what's real. Right? Commodities are the antithesis of everything that Elon Musk stands for. This is pulling stuff out the ground with your bare hands and getting dirt on your fingers and putting them in a warehouse. So I, again, I, I think that story bears watching um, in the broader context because I think uh, as goes Elon Musk, then you know, so goes society. I'm so glad you brought that up because I know you... I mean, you're a true gentleman and you're very cautious usually is how I perceive you when I listen to you normal, you know, usually to to uh, be too kind of uh, controversial in some sense. Uh, so I'm actually glad that you 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 brought this up. Uh, no doubt there will be an Elon gate at some point um, for sure. And I'm glad you, uh, you, you mentioned that here, even though it might fill up our Twitter feeds um, with a few uh, extra tweets, not so nice tweets maybe, who knows? Uh, well, it, it might do. But again, you know, Neil, what's interesting is if you, if you read the, the response now to tweets about Elon, mm -hmm. there are a lot more people who are not so keen to defend him anymore. Mm. Um, yeah. and, and like I said, I, it, it, this isn't about Elon. It's about... Sure. who he is in society and what he represents. And I think that the shift in sentiment around him is just going to be a very important signal for people to, to follow 
um, within the confines yeah. of everything we've spoken about in the last uh, last hour and change. Yeah, yeah. Now that's perfect uh, framing. Grant, this has been an unbelievable conversation. Thank you so much for doing this uh, today. We thoroughly enjoyed it and I'm sure our listeners will as well. And before we go, let me just encourage everyone to follow and subscribe to the amazing content that Grant produces. I will, of course, put links in the show notes for today because as you can tell from today's conversation, we are living in a truly global macro-driven world and it is perhaps more important than ever before to stay well-informed. From Jem and me, thanks so much for listening, and we look forward to being back as we continue our Global Macro Series. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.